She says that her only choice is to start to go crazy or turn holy, as if those were separate things. Or maybe they're not. You're right. I'm not sure they are. Welcome back to Chapter, Verse, and Season, a lectionary podcast from Yale Bible Study. I'm your host, Helena Martin. Each week, we listen in while two of our faculty from Yale Divinity School discuss a text from the Revised Common Lectionary. This episode, we have Jacqueline Weintraub, Associate Professor of Hebrew Bible, and Christian Wyman, Professor of the Practice of Religion and Literature. They're discussing Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, which is appointed for Sunday, February 6th, the fifth Sunday after the Epiphany. The text is read for you by Mike Liebenau McAlintel, our Marquand liturgical assistant here at Yale Divinity School. Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him, each had six wings. With two they covered their faces and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! I am lost! For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep listening, but do not comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand. Make the mind of this people dull, and stop their ears, and shut their eyes, so that they may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears, and comprehend with their minds, and turn, and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is utterly desolate. Until the Lord sends everyone far away, and vast is the emptiness in the midst of the land. Even if a tenth part remain in it, It will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains standing when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Throughout Isaiah, it's interesting to see how some of the text is either arranged in verse, like set in verse, 
as opposed to set in prose. And I think what's kind of interesting to me as someone who thinks a lot about Hebrew poetry and by extension, wisdom, prophecy, um, and the different sort of kinds of Hebrew poetry is that that sort of setting is a little bit artificial, right? Because there's a way in which you could say, well, well, maybe it's prose that's shaped by rhythm or maybe it's irregular verse. Which one is it? Is it supposed to be written out in lines or is it supposed to be, you know, set out in verse? I think what's kind of interesting is because of the way it starts. This chapter starts, right, in the year that King Uziah died. And that sounds like just straightforward historiographical narration, right? Yeah. It's like it gives you the sense that like, well, we're now in historiography, right? Or we're going to read like annals. What you say makes you think of a poem by Marianne Moore where she says her father is saying this Hebrew poetry is prose with a sort of heightened consciousness. Ecstasy affords the occasion and expediency determines the form. Isn't I mean, nice? yeah, I mean, is it, that's kind of cool. I mean, isn't it sort of like, I'm t- definitely stealing this from someone, but I can't remember who I'm stealing this from, but that Hebrew poetry in a sense is sort of like as dancing is to walking, right? So that walking is like speech and then poetry is like dancing, right? So like dancing is sort of, it's like a stylized form of walking right yeah. or is it like imitating walking and it has all of these different patterns so much of the energy of this is in that sound in the way it just propels you forward these these verses above it stood the seraphims each one had six wings with twain he covered his face and with twain he covered his feet and with twain he did fly the mystery of it is enhanced by the rhythmical drive of it you know, I I always thought about feet here as it's actually genitals. But they're saying like like Oh really? Yeah. With like with two they covered their faces and with two they covered their genitals. Oh, right? so that's really um, that's really out there. That's even more out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I I mean, I, I don't think that's what you see in translation. I mean, if I look at NRSV, it says feet, right? And if you're thinking about like Maybe they're trying to do something like that we would call merism, right? Like from one extremity to another. You'd uh-huh. think the extreme points of a body would be feet and hands, right? Or head and feet. So maybe feet and faces make sense. But a face is not the same as a head. The face is an expressive part of the body or creative part of the body as our right? The genitals also the creative part of the body, right? So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Why would you cover your feet? Yeah. Why would you cover your feet? Right? Yeah. Uh, That's fascinating. What is the translation of unclean? I'm really interested in unclean. Oh, oh, this is, this is a fun. Okay. Here's the thing with that passage, because unclean, the word tameh, um, in Hebrew is usually used to indicate like cultic impurity. So one who is impure is not allowed to access the sanctuary, mm-hmm. but the prophet's lips are unclean because they have spoken what isn't true, right? This isn't about the prophet's so-called sinfulness. He's a human being who speaks of judgment based on his experience of being 
terrified in the presence of God, but he's nevertheless selected for this task. Now that's sort of like the, the traditional reading of this, but I have a different take. And I have a different take because I've you know, recently burned my tongue. So this is my, my take on it. So it says, right, one of the seraphs flew to me holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. And the funny thing is like, whenever you've burned your tongue, what's the sensation there? It's a co- complete loss of sensory perception. You can right. only feel the burning and you can't taste. So maybe this is like removing the capacity for mortal sense perception to be able to experience something beyond, like to shut off the the mundane sensory perception to allow for something that's beyond, right? It's also hard to speak when you've burnt your tongue. Yeah, it's a very similar metaphor that a lot of poets use too, where they become pure medium for the, the voice passing through them. and the experience is at once exalted and uh, anonymous. I mean, you, f- you feel completely stripped of yourself, so you're not exactly, you can't be proud of what you've made, for instance. It's as if it happened without you. Denise Levertov has a wonderful poem about Cadman, the, the poet Cadman, where he's mute as the story goes. He has a dream about God, and, and uh, then he becomes able to speak, and his voice is pulled into the circle of the dance at the end of that poem. And there's a lot of connections between the way that Isaiah speaks of the prophet and, and other books in the Hebrew Bible and the way poets forever have talked about poems coming to them. You know, it's hard to have a contemporary prophetic voice that doesn't sound hortatory and ridiculous and, you know, just overdone. But weren't their voices also hortatory and overdone? Definitely. There's definitely like each sort of like prophetic collection has its own kind of flavor to it but there's definitely a sense of breaking of social norms like this actually goes back to the first thing that i was saying which is it begins like historiographical but actually what happens right after that sort of explodes the genre right because yeah. it seems like you know in the year in the year of king uziah's death but then the genre completely breaks down right by the speaker's own use of his voice right I saw the Lord, which is craziness, right? Like anything, even in that culture, it's craziness, right? I had a vision. So like now we're, we are like immediately already in like the first line, we're like no longer in the realm of fact reporting in the history writing sense. And now we're like in subjective experiential reporting. There's something like ridiculous, both about like poetry making, right? And prophecy. Yeah, well, yeah, there's a wonderful poet, a Brazilian poet, Adelia Prado. She's still alive. She's in her 90s. And she, at the end of one poem, she's talking about poetry and prophecy. You know, and she says that her only choice is to start to go crazy or turn holy, as if those were separate things. Or maybe they're not. Or I don't think they, yeah, you're right. I'm not sure they are. I mean, I think this is what's going on here, that the seraphim saying like, holy, holy, holy. And he's entered into this. I mean, this is like a throne room scene. But it's also ridiculous in the sense that like a throne room scene would be, you know, going in and the fullness of the deity's robe. It's funny because I think um, some translations try to move away from the anthropomorphism, but it's very clear that the throne room is filled with the robe of the deity and he's entered into this, the prophet has entered into this completely like 
not mundane space. And so he has to shed his, you know, his mundane sense perceptions as human. Holy in Hebrew also indicates something that's separate or apart, right? So like, you know, the modern poet says, well, I'll either go crazy or I'll become holy. Like, well, those are actually, they could be the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Let me show you this poem by Fanny Howe. I'll read it to you. That It has a kind of, it's the prophetic impulse and the poetic impulse by a woman. And so it comes at it a little different and, and it begins, this is the whole poem, but I too want to be a poet to erase from my days confusion and poverty, fiction and a sharp tongue, to sing again with the tones of adolescence demanding vengeance against my enemies with words clear and austere, to end this tumultuous quest for reasonable solutions to situations mysterious and sore, to be free of the need to make a waste of money when my passion first and last is for the ecstatic lash of the poetic line and no visible recompense. Thanks for listening. We love hearing from you. If you want to be in touch, visit YaleBibleStudy.org and click the contact tab. There you can also find more Bible study resources, read the show notes or transcript from this episode, and find all our past episodes. That's YaleBibleStudy.org. Chapter, Verse, and Season is produced by Joel Baden, Kelly Morrissey, and me, Helena Martin. Production help is by Chriselle Bryce, and our theme music is by Calvin Linderman. Thanks to the Center for Continuing Education at Yale Divinity School. And thank you to Professors Weintraub and Wyman for sharing their wisdom with us. We'll be back with another conversation from Chapter, Verse, and Season. Season.